Investing in property makes sense. Investing in the right property takes knowledge. Welcome to the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. I'm Jared McCabe, Director of Wakeland Property Advisory. Join me for expert insights into the fundamentals, trends and opportunities to help you create long-term wealth through smart property decisions. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 53 of the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. So I'm very fortunate today to be joined by my colleague, Jordan Telfer, I don't need to give Jordan a, a wide-ranging um, introduction as he's joined me multiple times on the podcast in the past. Welcome, Gordo. Thanks, Jared. Good to be here again. So, Jordan and I thought today we'd have a bit of a uh, bit of fun with the podcast. Um, as you've no doubt read the uh, the title, my wife's brother-in-law's cousin said. So, over the years, we've um, had many property theories put forward to us, and most of them are from good-meaning relatives or friends at the uh, the Sunday afternoon barbecue. Um, and we wanted to, I guess, investigate a few of them and, and discuss them in a little bit more detail because in most instances, there's probably a degree of merit to, to these theories, but they're um, generally not a one-size-fits-all strategy and they need to be investigated and probably some of some areas knocked out a little bit. So we'll go through these, Jordan. Is there anything, um, any thoughts at this stage? That's, that's generally what we're going to talk about, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, it's the well-meaning uncle. It's the, um, the father of the... 20-something or 30-something daughter looking to buy a property for the first time that wants to take control of things. And um, make sure... Very, yeah, and it's, it's all, as you said, it's always well-meaning yeah. and it's always with the best of intentions. No one does these things for um, to um, to make a mistake, but we just wanted to um, to go over them in a bit more detail. So the first one is um, around the three little pigs theory of bricks, not sticks. So buying a, a brick property rather than a weatherboard. Yeah, it's been around for a long, long time. Um, theory being that brick houses attract greater demand than weatherboard. There's less maintenance to them. Um, they don't, they're not susceptible to termites, not as much upkeep. All of these sorts of things get rolled in. Um, as, as Jared said, we're, uh, we've got uh, there's an element of truth to most of these, if not all. Yep. Um, but just that there's not that nuance really that needs to be applied. So, um, as in terms of termites and brick houses, I've lived in both, yep. uh, brick and weatherboard, and it was a single front of brick Victorian that had termites. Well, the, the interesting thing is, if you spe- I mean, we've had Pete Alexander on the podcast before, who's a building inspector that we do a bit of work with, and you ask Pete around. Um, termites and where he sees most and he says it's in brick houses because they they attract a lot more moisture Uh, they quite often are set a lot lower to the ground um, and that moisture attracts termites and then they come through so he certainly he certainly says that he sees them more in brick houses than he does in weatherboard which um, would fly in the face of what most people's perceptions would Would, be and what they would think yeah exactly in terms of upkeep yeah i mean i'm in a weatherboard house at the moment and i'm looking at paint peeling down that west side thinking oh, i've got to get to that and then it starts to rot a little bit at the ends but um as i always say though you don't get you don't get cracking and you don't get rising damp yep. <laughs> except around fireplaces in weatherboard homes so it's, it swings and roundabouts now um positives and negatives with both really it's more a case though probably the perspective i want to take um here is more around values yep. and which is the better performer of the two yep. um setting aside um, some people may prefer one or the other because of personal reasons. They just feel more comfortable in one or the other. Um, South Australians are a good example of that. Me studying over in Adelaide for yeah. three years, but I mean, Adelaide, you, you see very few weatherboard homes yeah, right, okay. in Adelaide. Yeah. Most of them are of brick construction. Yeah. Um, and so I know I had mates of mine that came over to visit when I was living in Ballarat. My first home that I purchased in Ballarat was a little weatherboard um um, California bungalow house and that was the first comment that they made why would you buy a weatherboard house yeah. um, but in Ballarat 
in the right areas, the right style of house, it's very common and very well regarded. Yeah, it's interesting though, you look at Weatherward houses, you've seen plenty of them over the years, but um, there, historically there was that, and this is deeply ingrained in the brick houses yep. they perform better. You see um, your standard weatherboard houses, but your Victorian era weatherboards are often termed the block fronted. Yeah. So they have um, they have a style at the front which is designed to mimic brick, brick, mm. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think that we've it's become a little bit more sophisticated over the last few yeah. decades, and it's more around the dirt that is sitting on the location, and what's appropriate for the suburb yep. as well. Yeah. Um, so. Clients of ours would probably be aware. We've spoken about it from time to time. We, you don't see weatherboard homes in many of the inner northern suburbs. So Carlton North, Fitzroy North, for instance, they're yep. an anomaly. Yep. So it's probably not right for the area until you push out to Brunswick. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yep. Northcote, Thornbury, they're probably the predominant older style housing style. Yep. Um, and in some parts of, and well, apart from that, those inner northern, even in what are regarded as more premium suburbs, so parts of Paran, Hawthorne, um, and probably the best example of this with weatherboards is probably Cambridge Street. Yes, Armadale. One of my favourite streets in Melbourne. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's um, it's a funny little street, um, just a little east-west street, but north and south side of it, all Victorian yep. weatherboards. Yep. Um, not a brick amongst them, and it's one of the best-performing streets for houses in Armadale. Yep. So it's a little bit... Uh, you, it, it's... it's um, it's a bit of a misnomer that brick works or certainly works better than weatherboard. And then if you if you say, well, brick, what is brick? Is it solid brick Victorian or is it a brick veneer? veneer. Yeah, correct. So, you know, I'd, I'd take, all things being equal, I'd take the double-fronted period weatherboard home built in the 1890s, 1900s, probably through California, um, over the brick veneer yep. in terms of, um, as I said, all things being equal in terms of the aesthetic appeal to the widest marketplace and therefore it's ongoing. And we do normally, I mean, to, to not, we're not here to say that weatherboard is better than brick either. It's just that, and it's certainly not to say that it outperforms brick, but if you, um, and if you put them to Victorian homes side by side, which you could see in a suburb like Hawthorne, for instance, where they do see both, mm. The brick house is going to be more expensive yep. than the weatherboard if they're in similar condition. But what, what we're getting at, I guess, is that in terms of performance, in terms of annual growth, um, it's not to say that the brick one's going to outperform the weatherboard. Particularly, as, as we said, particularly when it's right for the area. Yep, correct. Yeah. So another one that um, we hear quite often, and particularly when the market warms up a little bit yep. and everybody uses Saturday morning, Saturday afternoons as their, um, as their sport to go see auctions, um, is never bid before the property is declared on the market. Yeah, we do see this one a bit. Um, and again, there's there's reasons and theories behind this. And, and in most instances, it's it's to do with the fact that um, you want to let other, everyone else out and let everyone else compete and knock themselves out of, uh, of the market. Uh, you want to know when you're playing for keeps. So you know when the property's on the market that if you're the highest bidder, you're going to buy it versus if it passes in, you um, you may still have to negotiate. You're not showing your hand too early. These are the theories around why we should not do that. And there's um, there's good reason for that. Yeah. Particularly if you're on a limited budget or you suspect that you're up a limit, might be the, as far as you can possibly get to, is it might be a little bit of a... You might be touch and go. You yep. perhaps want to wait and see if two or three other parties just sweep way past your upper limit yep. so you don't expose don't where your, your upper limit is yep. to an agent who you might be looking to um, in a week or two or a month or two's time 
Um, Buy something at a lower price. Yeah. Mm. So, but the problem I guess here is that if you don't bid at some stage, um, the property may not ever get on the market. Yeah. Um, so this theory is, I oh, don't, don't, don't bid, don't bid. Well, if the property never gets on the market, or if someone else bids but it doesn't quite reach um, getting on the market, then you may miss out because it gets passed into them and you are knocked out because they're going to negotiate exclusively with that party at that point in time. So you do need to be very careful around not being prepared to bid until a property's on the market. You can very quickly lose control of the bidding process. If you haven't bid at all, um, an auctioneer may assume that you're, it's beyond you, even if it hasn't been declared on the market, or that you don't have any interest, and they start focusing on other potential bidders around. So. It's not to say that you should be the first bidder. I'm not saying suggesting that at all. But having a blanket rule of I don't bid until the property is declared on the market is not going to serve you well. Yeah, it probably goes into that. Um, I could incorporate it into what I, I like to say. You call your tool bag yep. that you go to an auction with. So we do actually get asked this quite often is how are you... What are you going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to bid by clients at auction? And it's, And my answer to that is, well... I don't know. Mm. I know what I might need to do in certain circumstances, but I can't say this is how it is going to play out because every auction is totally different. Yeah, correct. Um, so it's, it's, I use the analogy of a tool bag. You know, if you're a tradesperson, you turn up, somebody says, I've got a problem with my house. Yep. You turn up with your full tool bag. Yep. And you walk in the front door, you know what you need. Yeah, Hammer, correct. screwdriver, whatever it might be. And sometimes we do open the bidding. Could be good reason for that. It's to take, you take control of yep. it. Particularly if you suspect that you're the only one there um, you probably don't want the agent putting in a vendor bid that's, um, you know, right at the top end. You might want to start at the bottom and work your way up. Yeah. You might also want to come in at a point where you leave yourself plenty of room before you reach your limit. Because if you come in, if you leave it to the last yeah. and two parties are weakening, you know you've got to jump in because you might be five or $6,000 from your limit. But you jump in there, you have nowhere to go. You can't increase the bidding, you can't slow it down, you can't speed it up, you're too close. Yeah. If you just start your run up from a bit further back, you can, you can then have a bit some more control. Sort of control. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily, as you say, Jared, mean um, opening the bidding, but it might well mean before the property is declared on the market. Yeah. And your input to the proceedings might actually force the force or encourage hand. the agent's hand yeah. and the vendors to actually put it on the market. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so another good one that, I mean, we do hear quite regularly is um, I think you should manage the property yourself, particularly if a property's been purchased pretty close by um, because it's cheaper, you've got greater control, you know what's going on, and property managers don't really do anything for you anyway. Yeah, there's that cynical um, attitude from some people. And, and to be fair, sometimes it's because they've been burnt in the process. Yeah, they've yeah. paid good money and they just really feel that they haven't received the service, the service that they want. Yeah. And so I get that. I do understand that. And there are... Um, quite justifiable um, circumstances where somebody throws their hands in the air and say, look, they're just conduits, they don't advise, they don't guide, they, they're on the tenant side, not my side. We hear a lot of that, yep. um, which is understandable. But when it comes down to just being, I don't want to pay the price, um, that's where it's it's false economy as far as I'm concerned. Um, they take, property managers take on responsibilities that most of us aren't equipped to take on or have the time or inclination to. Correct. Um, and I, I see them as, there's a lot of insurance value with property managers too. Sometimes it's as simple as, okay, the money comes in, they pay the bills on your behalf, the money goes out, fantastic. If something goes wrong, um, if the money isn't being paid, chasing a tenant, um, if repairs are needed, yep. organising tradespeople, organ adhering to the more and more stringent requirements of the Victorian Residential Tenancies Act, yeah, for example. which are constantly changing. Constantly, and you don't want this as an owner. Um, and to be paying, 
in our view, is you're probably going to be paying more than 5.5% management fee to yep. get the service that you expect. If you, if you expect good service, you can't be paying that sort yeah. of level. And I've calculated on the basis of, you know, just, just do the numbers, um, $600 a week um, rent. Yep. It's probably a, a, an asset of one one to one point two million when yep. you look at um, what that's current values yeah, and current yields and things. Yep. You break it down and um, even paying seven percent plus GST as a management fee after tax on the you know, the average weekly wage, you're looking at something around about thirty dollars a week. Yep. Um, I paid I paid thirty three dollars on the weekend for three cans of Carlton at Marvel Stadium. <laughs> really, putting it in perspective, this, we're asking somebody to manage and oversee um, an asset worth one point one one point two million dollars. Yeah. So, um, to me, it's a false economy, and that's coming from. I mean, everybody has a different perspective, but this is mine after having um, you know engaged with property managers on my own property for the last twenty odd years. Yeah. Um, and that's just my approach, and I just um, think it's a recipe for disaster. Really. Keeping got to keep things in perspective, yeah. don't you? Yeah, so uh, another good one, um, and again, element of truth to it is yeah. whatever you're buying, you buy something with as much land as possible. Yeah. Incorporate as much land in the purchase. Which, as you said, there's absolutely merit to it. Um, land is absolutely what appreciates, so having a good, strong land component is really important. Um, but as we've spoken about many times in the past, it's not so much about the size of the land, it's about the location of the land, where you are, what that land is worth, and why it's worth what it is. So... We've said this many times, but big is not always better uh, when it comes to property. So um, if, you can, if you can get the, a, a decent parcel of land in the right location, in, in a good street with good access to services, good surrounding development, um, attractive streetscape, and you can get a, a, good, a bigger block than perhaps around the corner, then yeah, absolutely, go for it. But if you're compromising to buy a bigger parcel of land and perhaps moving a suburb further out or going from being in a quiet street to being on a main road or going from uh, buying something that's got an adjoining, a compromised adjoining mm. use of some sort, um, that's where you're starting to compromise the property just to get a bigger land. And that theory just doesn't wash. It doesn't stack up. Yeah, it's, it's value, um, not amount. And proportions are also important as yep. well when you're looking at the overall package of, um, of a house and land. And what's the purpose of the purchase too? So, I mean, if you're buying for investment purposes, do you really, really want a massive parcel of land that your tenant then has to maintain for you? Particularly if it's got gardens and things that might be adding significant value, is a tenant really going to maintain that? Um, so that could be a bit of an issue. So what's the purpose? Now, if you're buying it for development purposes, yeah. then that's, again, a different story. Yeah. So understanding what the purpose is, but a blanket rule of always buy as much land as you possibly can, no, don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. Uh, another good one is, and we do get this one quite often, and it's not dissimilar to the one that we said earlier, but just taking a slightly different angle, um, never buy at auction. Always put an offer in beforehand. Mm. Yeah, the theory being that you pay too much at auction because an emotional premium is always paid. People yep. get carried away at auction, um, perhaps whether that's because of nerves or because they can see the property right there before them that's um, about to be taken away. And most out of, their hands most of the time, the, the person, bit, again, same as what you said before, the property management, but the person with this theory has probably been burnt at an mm. auction and paid too much for a property or felt as, felt as though things got out of their control. Yeah, or expected to be able to buy at a certain level based on quote ranges yep. and felt they'd been dudded. Yep. Yeah, so and I get that. And the, 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 I guess the issues here too are that 
you can actually by doing by implementing this strategy and buying before auction you run significant risk of paying more than you need to you do because what you then what you what you can often do is start a process of which you quickly lose control yeah so by putting that offer in beforehand sure it might blindside one or two people that haven't got themselves together yet but if there's one or two others that are in a position to counter your offer yep. um, or counter your interest, well, the only person that's got full line of sight over all of the parties to the negotiation, including the vendor, is the agent. Yep. Whereas at least out on the street, particularly once the property is on the market, you know who the competition is and there is a sense of um, transparency as well, um, that fair market value. You can see everything. You can see everything that's going on. You know, you know who you're bidding against, how much, all that sort of thing. So, I mean, for all, for, there is a lot of negative. There can not a lot, but there can be negativity around the auction process. But um, it's a, it's one of the fairest and most transparent ways to buy property. It is. It is. So probably our last one that we want to go through um, here today is this theory that you buy the worst house in the best street. Um, it's probably behind location, location, location <laughs> is probably the most, it's, it's probably the, the most. The com- it's the most common, common property yeah. comment. Yeah, absolutely um, it is. Or buying below the median house price of a suburb is another. Yeah, that's a good one too. And it's, well. it's both of them around values, around mm-hmm. property values and, and trying to buy at good value or below market value is the theory, I guess. With the best, well, sorry, buy the worst house in the best street. Again, there's merit to it. It's mm-hmm. not to say that it's, it's wrong. In fact, it's probably of all of the ones we've spoken about today, it's probably the closest. Yeah, I would think. Um, because you are buying, obviously, in a really good location, it's something that's well regarded for, obviously, it's not going to be for one reason, it's going to be for a number of reasons. It's going to be accessible, it's going to be attractive, it's going to be most likely tree-lined, um, might have a nice grass median strip like a Canning Street in Carlton North up the middle, but it's going to be well regarded for, for any number of reasons. Um, the, I guess the concern is, from a, a buyer's perspective when you're buying this type of home, is why is it the worst house? And, and is that going to be rectifiable? Because in many cases, the worst house hasn't been changed because it can't be. Yeah. Um, if it's a street that, that's covered totally in some form of heritage overlay, it may mean that the council says, well, you can't, you can't change that. Um, it's it's got to be maintained. You need to maintain the facade. Or, and so you can then start to overcapitalise by trying to amend this property and change this property for the better. And if it's not in keeping with what most buyers want in that suburb location street, then it's always going to be seen as a poor cousin. Yeah, and an extension of that is the idea, and it's a theory that's been thrown around, is that to try to probably bring some some science to the process yep. is to study the median value and buy below that. Well, I would ask, why is this property, particularly in an established suburb, why is this property below the median? Yep. What is it? What is it about? And it might be something as simple as, well, it's this is a property on 200 square metres of land, whereas most of the properties are on 600 square metres yeah. of land. So you'd expect that it's below the median. Um, but if it's an established suburb and it's you know it's like for like in all other respects, what what's well, it's not that. quite right? Yeah. Is it an irregular shape? Is it on a steeply sloping block? Is it does it have a noise wall out the back from yeah. the neighbouring freeway? These sorts of things. And those are things that that's simplistic. And it can be things that are you're not out of your control things that you're not going to be able to change mm-hmm. so below median house price as an example well you could be buying in one of the worst streets in that suburb mm-hmm. um and so it, and it might be compromised because that street backs on to industrial factories at the rear um that put out some form of waft all day and every day and, and no one really wants to live in that location or there could be um the freeway uh, over the back fence and so you've got noise constantly coming through so 
is that something that you can then change by buying below the median house price? No, you can't. No. And you're never going to be able to, and it's always going to be seen as being below the median house price. The theory with that is that if you bought the right property, as you said before, for the right reasons, and it does have a lot of factors going for it, um, and it is in a good location, but you've managed to pick it up below market value. Because maybe the improvements are, are shoddy or yeah. they're, just, they're just, they're not hitting dated. the market. They're dated. People are, are, uh, have got an aversion to doing renovations, as we're seeing with a lot of properties at the moment. Well, and, there's uh, upside to Correct. That. And if you've got the want to do that and the ability to, particularly if you've got some form of trade background or family relatives that do, then you can lift it above that median house price. So again, there is merit to it, mm. but this blanket one size fits all theory, no, no, again, not with those two. But I, I do think that the, the worst house, best street um, is probably as close as you close. get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Apart, location, location, location is the, the, the one because it's bang on. Yeah. It is, everything's about it. But um, worst house, best street, a lot of merit, but there's, there's a few little things there that you need to be mindful of as well. Yeah. I think we could um, name any number of these, Jordan. I think we could uh, have we could talk about these endlessly. So it may be another topic for another day that we might uh, investigate this further. But uh, I think that'll do us for today. So thanks for joining us, Jordan. Thanks, Jared. Episode 53 of the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast, all done and dusted. As always, please feel free to share it far and wide with our friends, family and colleagues. And if you'd like further information on how to make rewarding property decisions, please visit our website, wakeland.com.au, and we wish you all the best with your property decisions.